You're listening to audio from christian.org.uk, the website of the Christian Institute. You can find hundreds more audio files at christian.org.uk. We turn to God's Word. I'm going to read from the New Testament, from the second letter of Timothy, second letter of Timothy, chapter 3, beginning to read from verse 10. 2 Timothy 3, verse 10, reading through into the opening parts of chapter 4. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desired to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. May God bless to us this reading from his holy and inerrant word and to his name be praise and glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Ever-living God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you for your living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord and our God. We thank you for your written word, the Bible, for its truth, and for the way in which it rebukes us corrects us, 
trains us in righteousness and sustains us day by day. Thank you too for that reminder from your very word that the word we read is sacred and holy and is your very word breathed out to us. Help us, Lord, we pray, to submit to its teaching and to its truth. And may its words shape our minds and our hearts and our wills. Lord, we pray you will grant us faith to trust your word entirely for the whole of our lives, personal, family and public. Equip us, we pray, for every good work. And we ask now, in the name of your precious Saviour, that we may be men and women who love your word and obey your word and practice your word as faithfully as we can. And we ask these things in and through the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Amen. It's a great pleasure for us to welcome tonight the Reverend Gareth Burke from Northern Ireland. Uh, And I've asked Gareth in a few moments if he'll say a word to us about the church in which he works, a little bit about it so we can better pray for it in days to come. And then after he's done that, he'll give his lecture about how the Bible applies to the whole of life. Well, I would like to thank uh, John for his welcome and the the warmth of your welcome this evening. Uh, It's a real privilege um, for me to be here and to have this opportunity of sharing with you tonight. I feel quite uh, unworthy and unfitted for such an occasion, but uh, I'm grateful to you for your welcome and for the kind invitation. Uh, well, I minister in Belfast in Stramulus Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Uh, Stramulus is just a district of uh, Belfast. It's really the university district of the city. Our church building is located very near to uh, uh, Queen's University, uh, which is the uh, premium university in the United Kingdom, as you know. And uh, we're not far from Queen's, and we are surrounded on every hand by students. Uh, all the housing... Uh, around the church uh, is student accommodation. Uh, Our congregation as such is not local. Uh, Our people travel in from very considerable distances in order to worship with us and to be a part of the fellowship in Stramulus. How can we justify that? All these people going by local evangelical churches and coming in uh, to us. Uh, Well, we would not be able to maintain a witness in that part of the city Uh, unless folks were willing to do that. And uh, we believe that God has called us and has placed us where we are to reach out particularly to the student population round about. Uh, This we do in uh, various ways. Uh, We have a student lunch on a Tuesday. Uh, It's very popular. Over 200 students will come in every week. Uh, It's free. And uh, (laughs) there's uh, folk coming from literally all over the world. And it is a wonderful opportunity in the gospel. We also have an international student Bible study and various other student groupings and have recently appointed a full-time student worker. We would ask you to pray for that student ministry especially because although folk will come to lunch and they will go to outings and uh, they will come to coffee uh, lounge and all of those sort of informal things, it is very difficult to get folk to come on to Bible study and to... uh, worship services 
which is what we really are looking for and desirous of. So please, if you could remember us in prayer, we would be most grateful. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Now, the subject given to me um, this evening is how the Bible applies uh, to the whole of life. And I want to begin tonight, if I may, by telling you about one of my relatives. He's a delightful gentleman in every way, uh, but he loves to tell a story. And if there's a family gathering and everybody is gathered together, he loves to just uh, take the floor and speak and share a story. And uh, there are two problems with his stories. One is that we've all heard them before. And uh, the second problem is that they always start way out there. In other words, if he lived in Newcastle and he wanted to tell you about someone that he met at lunchtime today, he would start yesterday morning. You know, I got up in the morning and I looked out and it was quite a good day and I didn't put the heavy overcoat on and I went out to church and then I came home and, you know, he would work his way through the day and then he would get up this morning and then he would eventually get to the person he met at lunchtime today. And that's not usually all that significant, actually, (laughs) the the punchline. There's a difficulty with his stories. He's a lovely, a lovely gentleman, but I have noticed that when he begins to retell these Stories, you're often sort of left alone. Uh, everybody remembers that, oh, they've left their mobile on, or they have to go and, and you're on a one to one. They always start out there, and then he works in. That's exactly what I'm going to do this evening. In uh, dealing with this subject, how the Bible applies to the whole of life, we will get there. Don't despair. We will get there, but I'm going to start out there and work my way in to the subject in hand. I want us to approach this uh, matter by asking three questions. Firstly, what is the Bible? Uh, There we shall consider the origin of Scripture. Then secondly, why did God give the Bible to us? That is the purpose of Scripture. And then thirdly, how does the Bible apply to the whole of life? That's a consideration of the application of Scripture. Well, what is the Bible. Think about that for a moment, please. Just inwardly, how would you answer that question? What is the Bible? How are you going to succinctly define what the Bible is? I'm going to define the Bible as the inspired and inerrant word of God. I was delighted that our chairman this evening in concluding the reading referred to Scripture as the inerrant Word of God. And we shall see, I trust, the significance of that in a moment. The Bible is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. Now, what do we mean by this? There are three strands in that definition, aren't there? Inspired, inerrant, Word of God. The Bible is inspired Now, we're not suggesting that the Bible is just inspiring. There is a sense in which that is true. As you read the Bible, our our souls are stirred, uh, our minds are enlarged, our spirits are, are lifted up. There is a sense in which the Bible is inspiring, but so are a whole lot of other things in life. I find it a 
incredibly inspiring to listen to the band of the Guards Division play Nimrod from Elgar's Enigma Variations at the Cenotaph on Remembrance Sunday. Incredibly inspiring. But when we say that the Bible is inspired, that's not what we particularly have in mind, the idea of Scripture being inspiring. No. Let us consult the Bible itself in relation to what inspiration means. Two texts particularly. 2 Timothy 3, the portion that was read, and verse 16. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. I'm reading from the New King James um, Version. Uh, The NIV very healthily renders this verse in the following way. All Scripture is God-breathed. And the ESV uh, renders it, all Scripture is breathed out. By God, and that is exactly what we mean by inspiration. Scripture is breathed out by God. This truth is also taught in Second Peter chapter one and verse twenty-one. We break in here to a flow in the argument. Verse twenty-one: For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So when we speak about the Bible being inspired, what we mean is this, that God breathed it out by his Holy Spirit. Expiration is really a better term than inspiration. God breathed it out by his Holy Spirit. The men whom God used to pen scripture, were guided and directed by God's Holy Spirit in the writing of scripture so that what they penned and what they wrote was absolute truth. Their individuality and their personalities were not crushed in the writing of scripture. But God, by his Holy Spirit, marvelously superintended all that was occurring to ensure that which the human writers recorded is utterly accurate and 100% truth. E.J. Young, in his very helpful book, Thy Word is Truth, says this of the human writers. They were in no sense mere automata, but rather men whose own gifts and talents were brought into usage in the composition of Scripture. You see that, don't you? Take Mark's Gospel. It's a Gospel of action. In the Gospel of Mark, our Saviour is found moving about from place to place. There's action. And we understand by tradition, and it's a good tradition, uh, that Mark acquired a great deal of the information which is found in his gospel from the Apostle Peter. So the gospel is a reflection of Peter himself, isn't it? He was a man of action. Compare and contrast that to the gospel of John. John was peaceful, settled, thoughtful, pensive. It's reflected in his gospel. When God is breathing out his word by his Holy Spirit... He is using men who are penning Scripture, but in the penning of Scripture, God, by His Holy Spirit, is so directing and overruling and guiding and directing in their thoughts and in all that they are doing to ensure that what they are recording is indeed 
the truth of God and what God himself wishes to record. But in this wonderful process, the individuality and personality of the human writers is not crushed. To quote from E.J. Young again, the scriptures did not find their origin in man, but in God. It was God the Holy Spirit who breathed them forth. They owed their origin to him. They were the product of the creative breath of God himself. The Bible is inspired, but it is also inerrant. Now, what do we mean by that? This word, inerrancy, really came to the fore in the mid to late 1960s. But what does it mean? Wayne Grudem defines inerrancy in the following way. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to facts. Now, until the mid-1960s, the word infallibility and the word inerrancy were essentially used interchangeably and were regarded as meaning basically the same thing. But more recently, infallible has been used in what we could call a weaker sense. Those who would hold to the infallibility of Scripture, but who would be reluctant to use the term inerrancy, would define infallibility in the following way. They would say the Bible is 100% accurate in matters of faith and practice, but they would assert that there is the possibility of false statements in Scripture in areas to do with science or minor historical details. You see the distinction? They who would only use the term infallible say that the Bible is 100% true in relation to, to doctrine and faith, but would suggest that there could be errors in Scripture in the whole area of science and, and history. Whilst those who hold to inerrancy, which is the position that I would put before you this evening, have a conviction that the Bible is reliable and trustworthy, not only in relation to matters of faith and practice, but in all matters. Now, if I seem to be going on and on about this tonight a little, uh, that's because it is an important issue, and it is important for us to grasp the distinction uh, between infallibility and inerrancy and the vocabulary that is used. The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which you will find at the back of uh, J.I. Packer's book, God Has Spoken, is a very helpful document. Allow me, please, just to quote uh, from one or two parts of that statement. Holy Scripture, being God's own word, written by men, prepared and superintended by his Spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. We affirm that inspiration, though not conferring omniscience, guaranteed true and trustworthy utterance on all matters of which the Bible authors were moved to speak and write. We deny that the finitude of, 
or fallenness of these writers, by necessity or otherwise, introduced distortion or falsehood into God's word. Now, these are good statements. We deny that the fallenness of the writers introduced distortion or falseness into God's words. The Bible is inspired. The Bible is inerrant. The Bible is the word of God. Why do you use words? Why do you speak? Well, you know why, of course. We, we speak in order to communicate. How will you know what's in my mind and the thoughts that are in my mind unless I verbalize those thoughts? And so as we think of the Bible as the Word of God, we, we, we should remember that God is speaking to us in His Word. He is making known to us His mind. He is declaring to us His thoughts. He is making known to us His will in his word. E.J. Young, again, a word is simply the vehicle by means of which thought is communicated from one mind to another. And when we then speak of the word of God, we are employing an expression to designate the means which God uses to convey to us the thoughts of his heart. God has spoken to us in order that we may know what he would have us do, Through the medium of words, he has revealed his will. Now, the Bible is not the only place where God has spoken to us. Because Psalm 19, at the beginning, and Romans chapter 1, and verses 19 to 21, teach us that God has spoken in his creation, in in the world around us. Isn't that true? The heavens declare the glory of God. And even the fallen creation reveals to us something of the power and greatness and majesty and glory of God. Paul in Romans 1 teaches exactly the same. That as you observe the the, the wonder of God's creation, you are confronted with the fact that this God is a glorious and a mighty and and a powerful and a great God. This year, uh, my wife and I had opportunity to visit New Zealand. Uh, it, it was for a church conference, not just a holiday. <laughs> and uh, we were very kindly treated there, and it's a very beautiful country. I have to keep myself well covered in case there's any Kiwis here. It's, uh, it is a very beautiful country in every way. And we were taken out on various tours, and the, the folks were very pleased to show us the mountains. And they're glorious. The mountains are fantastic. And they were saying, just look at those mountains. And my wife, who's from Edinburgh, was saying, yeah, we have those in the Highlands too. So, not now, not now. But it was fantastic. It was very impressive. So, why has God spoken in his word? He's already spoken in his creation. He's already revealed something of his power and greatness in the world around us. Indeed, the very creation of man, the high point of God's creative activity, is a reminder to us of the the greatness of God, Wayne Grudem, the beauty of a snowflake, the majestic power of a thunderstorm, the skill of a honeybee, the refreshing taste of cold water, 
the incredible abilities of the human mind, all these and thousands of other aspects of creation simply could not have come into existence apart from the activity of an all-powerful and all-wise creator. God has spoken in his creation and in his created order. Indeed, in the creation of man himself, as Grudem says, created in the image of God, we see something of the great creative power and majesty of our God. It is man himself who most abundantly bears witness to the existence of God, Grudem writes. Whenever we meet another human being, we should, if our minds are thinking correctly, realize that such an incredibly intricate, skillful, communicative, living creature could only have been created by an infinite, all-wise creator. So God has spoken. He's spoken in his world. He's spoken in his creation. He has spoken in the creation of man. We are, after all, fearfully and wonderfully made. Why then has God spoken in his words? Well, Psalm 19 gives us the answer to that, doesn't it? And uh, 2 Timothy 3 also gives us the answer to that question. Why has God spoken in his word? Here is Paul writing to Timothy. And what does he say to him in verse 15? From childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Why has God spoken to us in his word? Because we can look at the hills and we can look at man. We can observe God's creation. We can marvel at the intricacy of the the human being. But all of these things whilst they teach us something of the character and being of God, do not teach us or reveal to us how I, as a sinful man or woman, can be reconciled unto the holy God. God has spoken to us in his word in order to make known to us in his word the way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. God has spoken in the scriptures and it is there that we we read of his plan of redemption running through scripture from Genesis to Revelation. God has revealed himself in the word of God in the Bible in order that we may be reconciled unto him through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. That's why God has principally spoken to us. In his word. It's not the only reason, but it is the principal reason why God has spoken in Scripture. And I've got to ask you this evening are you listening to him as he speaks of sin and of the fall of man, as he speaks of our lost condition before him, as he shows us that there is only one way of salvation, and that is by repenting of our sin and and looking to his son, Jesus Christ, in faith. Are you listening? Are you listening to God as he speaks in his word? What is the Bible? The Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God. It is inspired. God breathed out his word by his Holy Spirit. It is inerrant, without error or fault. It is the word of God, God's special revelation in which he reveals to us especially 
the way of salvation in Jesus Christ. Our second question, why did God give the Bible to us? We have, of course, touched upon that in speaking of the way of salvation in Christ. Uh, But if you turn again to 2 Timothy chapter 3, you will notice in verses 16 and 17 that we have fuller detail here concerning the purpose of Scripture. Timothy writes, uh, Paul writes here to, to Timothy. Timothy is a converted man. Timothy has faith in Christ. He has come to know Christ through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And now is one who has experienced God's salvation and has entered into a relationship with the Lord. What's the, the purpose of the Bible for Timothy and others? Well, verse 16, it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why did God give the Bible to us? For doctrine, for teaching. It is in the Bible that God has revealed himself to us. He has told us not everything there is to know about himself, but he has told us everything that we need to know about himself. It is in the Bible that we read about God and the attributes of God and who God is. It is in the Bible that we read about God's creation, about the fall of man into sin, about the way of salvation in Christ. It is in the Bible that we confront these great and and wonderful truths. And God has given his word to us that we may be taught, that we may be instructed in our faith, that we may be built up. In our faith. The Bible has also been given to us for reproof. We go astray. We wander. We do that which is wrong. Uh, We fail God. And as we read the Bible and as we listen to the Bible being preached... Our sin is exposed and revealed. We see where we have failed God and turned aside from his commandments. God chastises us and rebukes us through his word. But notice the balance, please. God doesn't only rebuke us and show us our sin and our folly and chastise us for our wrongdoing, but he cracks. The Bible has been given for reproof and for correction. In other words, God shows us not only where we have gone wrong as we read his word and listen to it being preached, but God also shows us in his word the right way to go, how we are to get back on track spiritually when we fail God and when we turn aside from his commandments. He has given the Bible to us for instruction in righteousness. What's righteousness? Holy living, conforming to God's righteous requirements, conforming to God's law. Righteousness here speaks of of holy living. Uh, And the Bible has been given to us to show us, to instruct us how we are to lead holy lives. So as we immerse ourselves in Scripture, we are taught by God. We are shown our sin. We're shown how we should live. We grow closer to God. We advance in holiness. And as we do so, we mature and develop in our Christian lives that the man of God may be complete. 
and we become useful in the service of God, thoroughly equipped for every good work. God has given his word to us, yes, that we may know the way of salvation in Jesus Christ, but as those who are believers in Christ, that we may develop and mature and grow and deepen in our walk with God, that we may be clear as to what sin is, that we may be clear as to how we are to live in a way that is honoring to God, and that we might be useful in the service of God. What is the Bible? It is the inspired and errant word of God. Why did God give the Bible to us? Well, Paul answers the question. Verses 16 and 17 of Second Timothy Chapter 3. And now to the main subject of the lecture. Well, that didn't take too long. It wasn't too much of a digression. My relative would have been much longer. How does the Bible apply to the whole of life? The application of Scripture. Now, this could be very brief. How does the Bible apply to the whole of life? In every way. Amen. <laughs> Well, that is true, isn't it? The Bible applies to every area of life, either directly by speaking into specific and definite situations or else by setting before us principles that we can extract from Scripture and apply in to particular situations that confront us today. You can find principles in Scripture that will direct you and guide you in every part of life from from buying a washing machine to finding a wife. It's all here in the Word of God. Now, how am I going to demonstrate this? <laughs> I've struggled with this. <laughs> and I've, uh, I've shared it with my family a couple of times. I have four children at home ranging from age 16 to age 25. And, and they share quite openly what they think about, you know, the preaching and so on. Um, so I've tried this on them. Uh, they were divided on this approach, which I'm about to take. Uh, one said, great, go for it, Dad. Um, the other said, if you take this approach, Dad, they will think you are a complete intellectual numpty and won't <laughs> listen to you for a moment. But that's the approach I'm going to take. I'm going to tell you about a man... A man. He's not a real character, uh, but uh, he's not based on anybody I know or knew or am likely to know. He's a completely made-up character. Uh, but his situation isn't out there. His situation is quite real and a situation which I think you can identify with. Let me tell you about this man. He's aged 24. He's a young man. He grew up in... Yorkshire, in a village in Yorkshire, and it was a lovely village, and uh, he grew up in an evangelical home. His mother and his father were believers, and he had brothers and sisters, and they all professed faith, and he went to the local evangelical church in Yorkshire. You getting the feel of who this man is? You can picture him. Now, 
He's gone to study in York University, and there he has studied uh, building surveying. I don't know if they do building surveying in York, but that's what he's gone to study, and he's specialised in valuation. He's a bright fellow, he's done well, he's come out with his degree, he's suitably qualified, and he has obtained a job with a firm of estate agents uh, in London. So here he is, fairly sheltered background, had a sortie into university that exposed him a little to the world, but not that much. He professes faith in Jesus Christ and has done so since childhood. He's been brought up in a church where the word of God is preached and where he's surrounded by those who are committed to the gospel. He's now ready to go out there on his own and he's down in London working in this distinguished farm of estate agents and he's only there two months And he's gathered up a few issues that he needs to deal with. And we want to think about these issues and see what the Bible has to say about them and how the Bible applies to everyday life. First of all, there's the whole issue of truth. He's an estate agent. And I want to say that if anyone is an estate agent here, I'm not getting at estate agents. I have a a car dealer in my own congregation who's an honourable, upright and worthy brother in every way. Uh, And, uh, you know, involved in sales. But he's an estate agent and he's working there in London. And uh, one of the first things he has to do, and this is why the issue arises, he's responsible for the sale of a very expensive house in in a very fine area of London. Now, he knows that the house is riddled with dry rot. It doesn't say that on the advertising blurb. He speaks to the seniors in the firm and he asks them about this. What am I to say about this issue? And they say, if you're asked the question directly, then just sort of fudge it the way a politician would if interviewed by Jeremy Paxman. That sort of just kind of waffle it out. But don't answer directly. He's got an issue with truth. What does the Bible say? He's also got an issue in the area of relationships. He's working in this office and there is a girl in the the office and uh, he's working quite close with her. She's been there longer than him. She's very helpful. He chats a great deal to her and he begins to realise that, you know, his heart is beginning to pound and uh, there's, uh, you know, an attraction developing towards the girl in question. And uh, what is he to do about that? She's very religious. She goes to church all the time. She wears a necklace with a cross. And, you know, he has had some discussions with her on religious themes. She believes that evangelicalism is a legitimate expression of Christianity. Uh, But she doesn't believe it is the only legitimate expression of Christianity. And he's needing guidance from the Word of God, the Bible. At home in his home church, the pastor has always been pounding away at the fact that the Bible is a practical, relevant book. So what is the Bible saying to him in this situation? The third situation is even more serious. Now, I pondered long and hard about whether to include this, but I've decided to. 
the senior in his firm over him is uh, a homosexual. The man to whom he is especially accountable and who is training him up in this uh, estate agency business is a homosexual. Now, uh, I didn't know whether to include this or not uh, because sometimes uh, in considering sin and in considering the sinfulness of our society, uh, we often speak about this particular issue and sometimes we are in danger of conveying the impression that this is the only sin that is out there at the present time. I think also we have to pay due heed to Ephesians 5 and verse 12. It is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. We've got to be careful about how we handle this sin and an overemphasis upon it. Nevertheless, it is, of course, out there. What's required of him in the workplace, in his contact with this senior? Fourthly, He's looking for a church, and he's got plenty of choice in London. And he's touring about. I had a friend who did this, uh, not in London, but in another place. And uh, he uh, he got a sheet, just like this. And he he put the names of various churches down the left-hand side. Across the top, he had columns. Preaching, prayer, Mm -hmm. fellowship, hospitality, invitation for lunch on Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) And, and he scored it out of 10. And he came to me after about two months, because we were in the same digs and in the same place. And he said, I've got a terrible dilemma, a terrible dilemma. And he showed me a sheet. And, and the way it was shaping up was like this. You know, preaching, 9 out of 10. Fellowship, 3 out of 10. Or preaching, 2 out of 10. He was hard to please. Fellowship, 8 out of 10. What am I to do? Where am I to go? It was his view, and I'm not saying I agree with it, but it was his view that where the word is well preached, often the fellowship wasn't great, and where the fellowship was great, the word wasn't really happening. So here's our friend in London, and he's looking for a church. What does the Bible say? What should he be looking for in a church? And then finally, he loves boxing. (laughs) Might not have time for that one. He loves boxing. His uh, friend has got one of these wee machines and they've got wee boxing on it and he he finds it very helpful at night to go home and to get onto the wee and put it onto the wee boxing program and he loves to pound that other fellow uh, through the the ring. But in reality, he loves to go on Saturday evenings to wherever you go in London to see boxing. And some of his friends have got worked up about this. You can't be... As a Christian, having an interest in boxing. No, he's taken them on. They love cricket and rugby. <laughs> What's the difference, he's arguing? You play cricket and the fellow comes up and he, he bowls the ball at you at uh, 84 miles an hour. You know, nearly takes your head off. That's dangerous. Well, what about rugby? I love rugby. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking for a quotation and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get it up in, in, in Google. So I'm going to paraphrase and, and, and surround it with all sorts of, I understand that. And it's been reliably suggested that Brian O'Driscoll, you know Brian O'Driscoll? Yes. He recently said that he got a buzz when playing a rugby match when he realised a friend was on the opposing team. 
I'll hurt him more than anyone, he said. <laughs> so, what's the difference? What's wrong with this boxing? So here he is, 24 years of age in London, wrestling with issues. Issues. What does the Bible say? How does the Bible apply to the whole of life? Well, his work. Truth. Well, you know what the Bible says about truth. Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, the Ninth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The book of Acts, chapter 5. Our friend turns to this uh, portion and it's all there, isn't it? Ananias and Sapphira, they lie. And what happens to them? They are struck down by God for lying. God is the God of truth. God is against lying. And the Ten Commandments and uh, Acts chapter 5 are absolutely clear and specific about that. God is for truth. And his word reveals that to us. But then there are other passages to which he turns. And about these, he is not so sure. And we need to think about these this evening. There is, first of all, Exodus chapter 1. You know the context here. The children of Israel are in Egypt. They are in bondage. They are being oppressed by a cruel pharaoh. And in Exodus 1 at verse 15, we're told that the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives and he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. God dealt well with the midwives. Well, He's not sure about this. The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are lively and give birth quickly. Now, it could have been true. It could have been true. I don't know. John Murray, uh, in his very useful book, Principles of Conduct, and I commend the chapter, The Sanctity of Truth, to you, in that book, makes the following comment. Let us grant, however, that the midwives did speak an untruth, and that their reply was really false. There is still no warrant to conclude that the untruth is endorsed, Far less that it is the untruth that is in view when we read, and God dealt well with the midwives. No, I think that's a very useful comment. It's true, God did deal well with the midwives. It's true that, that God did bless the midwives. But that does not mean that God was well pleased with everything that they did. It does not mean that God approves of every action in which they engaged. And there is no indication in Scripture that God dealt well with the midwives because of this statement that they had made to Pharaoh or because of the untruth 
that they had spoken. This is more clearly seen in the case of Rahab, which is found, of course, in Joshua chapter 2, and particularly in verses 4 and 5. Again, our friend is wrestling with this passage. He notices that Rahab is included in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, and also in Hebrews 11 at verse 31, and in James chapter 2 and at verse 25, Rahab is spoken of very positively as a woman of faith. Here in Joshua chapter 2, spies have come to spy out the land of Canaan. She hides them uh, under some flax. The the fact that they're in her house is uh, revealed to the local authorities who come searching for these spies. And they come to the door of Rahab's house and they say, do you have spies here? And she essentially says, spies. I don't hang about spies. But they're up on a roof under some flags. How can you justify that? Well, I don't have any big difficulty with Rahab, actually, to be honest. She was only very recently converted from a pagan background. She had not been brought up as part of the covenant community. She had not been instructed in the law of God and in the ways of God. She'd only recently, very recently, come to, to faith... It was her instinctive reaction as one who was not yet well-schooled in the law and in the things of God. When her life was under threat and the whole situation was immensely pressurized to declare, I, I don't know where they are. God speaks well of her and the Lord speaks well of her. No doubt about that. No doubt about that. But, to quote Mary again, it is strange theology that will insist that the approval of her faith and works in receiving the spies and helping them to escape must embrace the approval of all the actions associated with her praiseworthy conduct. See what he's saying? Just because the Lord speaks well of her doesn't mean that the Lord approves of all the actions in which she engaged. But our friend has also been directed to what I think is a much more difficult passage, 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16. Now again, this is a very well-known incident. Saul, the king of Israel, is no good. He has failed the Lord. The Lord is setting him aside. The Lord comes to Samuel and says, I want you to go to Bethlehem, to the home of Jesse, because within the home of Jesse, one of his sons I have chosen to be the new king. Go, Samuel, to Bethlehem, to the household of Jesse. So Samuel sets off for Bethlehem. And uh, as he he comes uh, into Bethlehem, uh, what happens? The elders meet him. And they ask him in verse 4, do you come in peace? And he says, verse 5, I come in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, wait a minute, Samuel. I thought you had come to anoint a new king. I thought the purpose of your coming to Bethlehem was to be in the household of Jesse and that one of his sons had been selected by the Lord to be the new king and God would reveal to you who that son was. Surely, Samuel, that's why you came. I have come to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. True? God had told him to say that in verse 2. 
I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. True, he did offer a sacrifice to the Lord. He did. Samuel was authorized, says John Murray, to say nothing more than what he actually did say and perform. He did not speak what was contrary to fact. This incident makes clear that it is proper under certain circumstances to conceal or withhold part of the truth. It is proper under certain circumstances to conceal or withhold part of the truth. Now, what are those circumstances? What's the question? Well, well, all of us can, can think of situations in which we withhold part of the truth. If I was going to hospital tomorrow for a very serious and personal appointment, and you met me in the corridor of the hospital, and you said to me, what are you doing here? Am I obliged to tell you the full details of the appointment for which I have come. <coughs> or if I say to you, oh, I've just come to visit the outpatients clinic. That is truth. I hope you'll get the vibe and not ask me anymore. But am I obliged to, to tell you the whole works? And within your family, do you not have secrets within your family, things that are concealed from others. I know that around our, our dinner table from time to time I will, I will say to the family, now this is a family thing, uh, you know, and what do, they, what do they know when I say that? They, they know this, that it's not something to be spoken out there. Don't tell everybody in the church. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's a family thing. <laughs> So what are the circumstances in which it is right and proper to conceal the truth or to withhold part of the truth? I think that in the case of Samuel here in 1 Samuel 16, it's pretty clear uh, that there is a king, Saul, and if he declares, oh yes, I've come to anoint another king, well, what's going to happen to him? He's probably going to be killed isn't he? You've got a king, but I've come to anoint another king because the one you have is no good. That's going to lead to massive trouble and probably lead to loss of life. So in such circumstances, is it not legitimate where, where life is at risk, my life or the life of others, in those circumstances, surely it is legitimate not to tell a lie, but to withhold part of the truth. Now back to our friend. What's he going to do about the dry rot? Well, if he declares that he's not liable to be killed, but he could lose his job. What's his responsibility in that situation? What's the Bible saying to him concerning truth? Well, the Bible is saying to him, you must not, you must not, you must never tell lies. That's the first thing that the Bible is saying. And the Bible is also saying to him that in certain circumstances that are particularly pressurized or particularly personal, it is legitimate to withhold or conceal part of the truth. But in that concealing and withholding, you must be very careful. You're not telling lies. 
And here is a situation in which he is responsible for selling a house. And the person who is coming to purchase the house is looking to him as the authority and expert in this sale. Does he not have a responsibility in the light of the fact that this person is going to spend a huge amount of money and invest considerable capital in this new property? In the light of the fact that if this person will undoubtedly discover that the house is riddled with dry rot and be out much extra expenditure than they would ever have imagined, does he not have a duty and responsibility in that context to tell the whole truth? Sorry, friend. I think you'll have to tell them about the dry rot. Came across a very interesting snippet recently in relation to Corrie ten Boom. Uh, I think you probably know of, of Corrie and of, of how she, with her family, rescued Jews uh, during the Holocaust in Holland. But there's a story not about Corrie. It's often uh, told as being about Corrie herself, but it's actually about her niece. And there's a particular day uh, when some Nazi soldiers come to the door of Corrie's niece's house. They're searching for her brothers. Uh, they're not searching at that particular moment for Jews. They're searching for her brothers and they're going to seize them and take them away for forced labor in Germany. Now, in the house, there's a table, a dining room table. And underneath the dining room table, there's a trap door. And her brothers are hiding underneath the trap door under the dining room table. Did that make any sense? So the Nazi soldiers are at the door and they say, are your brothers in? She's a Christian. Got to tell the truth. What does she say? She says, yes. They're under the dining room table. That's a true story. The soldiers come in and they tip over the dining room table. There's nobody there. Because you know where they are. (laughs) And they go out enraged. She recounts this uh, to Auntie Corrie and is convinced that she has fulfilled her responsibility in telling the truth. Ponder. Truth. Now, the second issue won't take us quite so long. His uh, relationships. Um, This girl that he's become sort of fond of, well, very fond of, in, in the office and he's not sure what to do about her. She's very nice and, and uh, you know, she's religious and she's diligent and she's good to chat to and I think he must feel she's beautiful also. So all of that's happening there uh, but she isn't a clear-cut born-again believer and he is. He knows somebody who, forgive these terms, some of them I'm not all that keen on but nevertheless, He knows somebody who started going out with somebody else. You know, they were a Christian, but the other person wasn't. And through time, the Christian witnessed to the person who wasn't. And and wonderfully, God in his grace and goodness, you know, saved the unconverted party. And now they're happily married and they're in the ministry. Or he's in the ministry, rather. And, you know, it's all going well. (laughs) And all of us can throw out an example like that. You know, all of us have an example like that. Just because it happened to work out well in one situation and God was pleased to overrule in our sinful folly doesn't mean that we make that the norm. 
Bible is absolutely clear. Absolutely clear. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14. You know the passage off by heart, I'm sure. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Ah, well, folk will say, you see, that's marriage. That's talking about marriage. That's not uh, talking about, you know, dating or going out together or any of that thing. It's talking about marriage. Okay? Well, what are you doing then if you're going out? You don't think it's going to end up in marriage? What are you doing then? Well, what is this relationship that you have with this girl or with this fellow? Well, what is it? What's the purpose of it? Where's it leading? What are you doing? Sorry, friend. You've got to tell them about the dry rot. And you've got to work with this girl. But you can't marry her. That's what God says in the Bible. Now the third issue, and perhaps more difficult, to be honest. The senior in his farm is a homosexual. Our friend knows that, and the man has in some way indicated that. Now our friend is very clear on this issue. He's had a a lot of preaching from Romans chapter 1. He knows that this matter is a, a great sin, an abomination in the sight of the Lord, He's studied Romans 1 carefully and he's conscious that this isn't just a sin against the Lord and against his law and against all that God says concerning human relationships and marriage and purity and and, and all of those things. He knows that this is a, a, a grievous matter in the sight of God. But more than that, he knows that it is something which is also just obviously against the natural order. Obviously. And he's very aware of all those things. A grievous sin, an abomination in the sight of Lord, the Lord. Something that is, is contrary to all that God stands for. And something that God cries out against strongly in his word. And against the very natural order itself. But here he is in this estate agency. And here is this man. And he's accountable to him. He's helping him in the training process. He's got to deal with him every day. Now, what's he going to do? Is he going to take a stand and say, right, because you are a homosexual, I'm not prepared to work with you. I'm not prepared to be trained by you. I'm not prepared to listen to you in the workplace. Is he going to do that? Is that what the Bible requires of him? I think he's got to seize the opportunities when they arise. He's got to seize the opportunities to indicate where he stands. He's got to certainly make known to this man that he's a believer in Jesus Christ, and that he has faith in the Son of God, and that he's born again of the Spirit of God. He's got to make sure that he conveys that in some way or another quite clearly to this man, yes. But is he to work with him? What's he going to do? I think there are some principles that we can extract from Paul's teaching in Ephesians 6 and in Colossians 3. Let's go to Ephesians 6, please. Ephesians 6, where Paul is speaking in verse 5 and following, concerning the relationship between slaves and masters. Now, this is obviously very relevant into the society in which Paul is writing. 
Here is a man, he is a slave, he is converted to Christ, his master is unconverted. What is the slave going to do? In the providence of God, the sovereign God has placed this man into this household under the authority and direction of this master. What's he going to do now that he's converted to Christ? He, he doesn't think it is right. It isn't proper for a man to own another in this way. He, he sees that that is, that is something grievous. What, what's he going to do? Is he going to continue to serve in the household? Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, and so on. I think there's a parallel to here in relation to government. The powers that be are ordained of God. Well, look at the powers that be. Just look at the government. And over the past number of years, many years now, has government not been riddled with scandal, with immorality? of all kinds of grievous and sinful and evil things that are against the word of God and contrary to the law of God. And what do we do? We render to those who are in leadership the respect that we are required to give as they engage in the work of governance without approving of are giving affirmation to the sinful lifestyle in which they engage. You may want to take this up in discussion afterwards, but that's what I understand the principle here to be. We don't approve of the lifestyle. We don't approve of the sin. We don't in any way affirm that person in their lifestyle or in their sin. But we recognize that in the providence of God, as the slave was placed in the, in the household of the master, so there are times and situations and circumstances where we are placed under the authority of men or women whose lifestyle is contrary to God and to his word. And yet, does the Bible not teach us that we are to show those people the respect that they deserve in the workplace according to the particular role that they have there? Then I would say to our friend, pray on. It's a difficult one, a struggle. Yes, take your opportunity to witness. Make sure the man knows where you stand but you have to work with him. Without affirming him, without approving of his sin, you have to work with him. And you have to give to him the respect that is his due in the workplace as your senior. Church, where's he going to go? Well, he's going to find the local Presbyterian church. <laughs> Sorry, Lee. Evangelical Presbyterian Church. <laughs> no. Well, maybe. <laughs> well, the Bible is clear, isn't it? Look at Acts 2.42, please. Uh, you know this verse well. The God has been pleased to pour out his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and many, many have been converted unto the Lord. And we are told here that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, 
the breaking of bread, and prayers. Now, I do believe that there is a priority and order in this list that we have in Acts 2.42. It's not just that we are being told here about four things that characterized the early church and that were the marks of the early church and that they have been put together here in a sort of random way. But rather, I think what we are looking at here is a clear and distinct order as to how the life of the church is to function and what the marks of the church are. Doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, I take it as a reference to sacraments and prayer. And certainly, if you read through First and Second Timothy and others of the epistles, you will see the centrality of the preaching of the word, the centrality of the, the place of doctrine in the life of the church, the importance that is placed upon the declaring of the word of God in the midst of the congregation of Christ's church. And therefore, I would encourage our friend to, to go to the place where doctrine is central, where teaching has the priority, where the word of God is opened in truth. He may have a fellowship difficulty, and I recognize that, and have every sympathy for it as a young man far away from home. I have every sympathy for him. But in some ways, that can be catered for, even by, by getting some of his friends together and having whatever, a midweek Bible study or something of that nature or a time of prayer in early morning. But he must not neglect the preaching of the Word of God. That's his food, after all. That's his food, the food for his soul. They continued in the apostles' doctrine. And finally, and very briefly, the boxing. He loves it. Wow. Is there a place for sport in the life of the Christian? Is there a place for rest in the life of the Christian? Of course there is. There's a place for rest, no doubt about that. God instituted the Sabbath, yes, for our spiritual good, sure, but also for our physical good. And bodily exercise profiteth little, but the apostle doesn't say it profiteth nothing, it profiteth little. And he's speaking there of bodily exercise in relation to spiritual exercise. He's contrasting you know, physical exercise with the life of godliness and the disciplines of godliness. But he is suggesting that there is merit and value in physical exercise. After all, the body that was given to us is to be uh, looked after. We, we are given this body that we have as a stewards to care for the, the, the body which God has entrusted to us. So there is a place for rest. There is a place for recreation. Um, there is a place for Surely, uh, meaningful uh, physical activity that is going to be of a help to our body. Well, where are you going to take our friend then, in relation to the boxing? Hmm? Where I'm going might seem to you a bit extreme. I'm going to go to the sixth commandment. <laughs> you shall not kill. Now, why would I go there? Because the framers of the shorter catechism, the Westminster Vines, point out to us that this uh, commandment speaks about the importance of preserving our life and the life of others. Preserving our lives and the lives of others. So, I would have to tentatively suggest to him, 
having hit him with the fact that he has to declare the dry rot at work, having hit him with the fact that he has to say goodbye to the girl, and he has to struggle on under this homosexual uh, senior, and he's got to get church sorted and fairly quickly, I would suggest to him that he might just ponder that, and he might ponder the whole area of intent. When a man goes on to a cricket pitch, I don't think it's his intention to blow the head of the other fellow, is it? It ought not to be. It's not the purpose of the game. And when a man goes on to a rugby pitch, yes, there may be stamping and there may be other very wrong things occur there, but is it the intent? Well, what is the intent in boxing? No, my family's response to this was, well, you don't like boxing anyway, Dad. So that's, why, that's why you singled that one out, you know. But what is the intent? To preserve my life and to preserve the life of others. God has spoken in the world, sure. In the skies, yes, but in his word, in the scriptures. Inspired, inerrant, word of God, given to us that we might know the way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, given for our growth and development in Christ, for our maturing in the faith, as a manual for holy living, by which we are drawn closer to the Lord and more effective in serving him. The word of God, relevant to every part of life from purchasing a washing machine to finding a wife. God speaks directly to many of these situations and to others. He gives us principles that we can extract from his word and apply in 2009 to the complicated society in which we live. We thank God tonight for this, his word. And may this word, this Bible, these scriptures be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Amen. Thank you very much indeed, Gareth. Thank you. Uh, we've got a time for questions if anyone wants it. Have you provoked people sufficiently? Are there secret boxes here? Yes, there is clearly. Two brief points. One is just a comment. If I may say so, sir, it was... Uh, so refreshing both to my wife and I to hear such a clear, unambiguous and very simple statement concerning the inerrancy and the <coughs> inspiration of Scripture. Believed it from childhood, totally committed to it, but oh, how refreshing to hear it put so uh, succinctly and simply tonight. The question I have is much more complex. I... I'm a retired police officer from London for 30 years as a detective and as a uniformed officer, but mainly uniformed and leading the Christian Police Association, which I'm sure you're aware in Ulster. We grappled with this whole issue of honesty. I could relate a number of examples that I would just love you to mull over, but if I may just give one which is not one of my own, but has a relevance to yourself, sir. Uh, A very godly lady. I should think her name would be known here. She was 
one of our most senior women officers in the country, the time of her retirement, a very godly lady as a young officer too. Within my knowledge, she was engaged on an observation in Kilburn, part of London that was uh, particularly uh, difficult during the troubles in Ulster. A particular operation had reached a stage where they had to move, and she was in the special branch, and they had to move that night to bust the house and arrest the people inside. So it came to the point where the only observation point on that house had to be someone on the street. We had two special branch officers, here and another, dressed as prostitutes because it was the only way you could stand on that part of the road and not stand out like a thumb, observing the house. Unbelievably, along came a colleague, a police officer, and pressed, and pressed. He was going to arrest her. She didn't want to be arrested for prostitution. Furthermore, she hadn't committed any offence. No. She was there. He pressed, and it came, and I cannot recall the conversation. She had no alternative but to lie concerning her presence on that part of the road in Kilburn. The bigger picture was possibly the salvation of lives, the yes. protection of lives mm -hmm. in Ulster, mm -hmm. more than likely. Yes. We, in, the, in law, we, we, and I have to say to police officers, I've relied on the three examples you use, plus the fact that crime has to have two elements, the actus reus and the mens rea. Yes. The mens rea is the guilty mind, the intent. I wonder if you would comment on that. Thank you. I'm glad I was Thank you. Um, well, thank you for your first comment. <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, I think it's quite remarkable what you what you've suggested, uh, uh, and uh, I'm sure that situation does arise, and, and and situations like that again and again and again. I'm quite sure it's not just a, a one-off there. Um, I think that my own position, as declared, is that we are never at liberty to tell lies, but we are at liberty to conceal or to withhold the truth. There's a fine line there. A fine line. Um, there are those uh, Christian evangelical theologians who, who argue uh, that it is you know, legitimate to, to lie where lives are at risk. Right? So it's a different position. Um, I don't have an easy answer for the particular situation you describe. Uh, that is, is quite a remarkable one, really. And I don't have an easy answer um, for it. Um, <clears throat> I think it would be worthwhile, Mr. Chairman, just asking for a few a, a thought or two on this uh, from those who might be. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a good situation. It is a, a good situation. It's very, very carefully diverted. Did anyone feel mm. equipped to make a comment on that? There are enough wisdom in the room. Oh, Clifford, mm. yes, well done. Right, good. 
case of the midwives and in this case, is it not uh, legitimate to say the lesser of two evils? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are those who would argue, argue that, and I, I read even today some material that would argue that, that the midwives were justified because lives were going to be lost, and therefore you've got to evaluate the situation. It's better to tell a lie than for a life to be lost. And a lie, they would argue, is in that sense a lesser sin than you know, death, murder, um, which is the position that your colleague took there, really, isn't it? I'll tell a lie because the bigger picture means that lives are going to be saved. And in this circumstance, I can justify telling a lie in order that uh, lives can be, can be saved. Um, but that is different to the position which I set forth, um, which, which is that we ought not ever to lie, but we can in circumstances conceal or withhold the truth. That's different. It is different. Um, I'm not trying to be critical in that sense because I'm perplexed by it. And, and find it uh, find it a remarkable one, remarkable one. Yes, thank you, Clifford. Thank you for that because it re- relieved Colin and all the wise men from the CI for making comments. So, mm. thanks for that. Yes, sir. I think we need to bear in mind that the um, the end never justifies the means. As a Christian, and I, and I think um, as far as the estate agent is concerned, I think. It could be wise for a Christian just to say to the person, the prospective purchaser, that it might be a good thing under the circumstances for you to get a survey carried out on this property. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But in relation, without appearing to be too critical, but the other situation is, should a Christian woman ever be engaged in a profession where she's going to be found on the street in a hostile situation dressed as a prostitute? That's what I'd like to say. Well, that's an interesting one. I don't think we've got an instant answer to that. Any mm. other comments anyone would like to make? I feel very safe now in watching cricket, Gareth. Oh, good. I'm, good. I'm good. That's good. Uh, yes. I'm sick and tired of evangelicals telling me it's about watching paint dry. I don't find that a useful comment, nor a particularly biblical one. However... <laughs> Any other points anyone would like to raise? Colin. All right. Um, well, in the Second World War, mm. I think Churchill had... Uh, no doubt there was all sorts of deception and lies told, but I know that as they were about to launch uh, D-Day, they had cardboard tanks placed, masses of them, hundreds of them, um, on the south coast. Uh, now that that may be deception. Is that is would that be legitimate? <laughs> Cardboard tanks. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I can go with that one. I have problems with the other one. I have problems with that uh, and the whole area of lying and concealing truth. I I, I can go. With with the cardboard tanks. Yeah, they were um, the wrong place. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. They that no, I, I appreciate that, and with respect, they weren't going to invade at all. But I think that we're into the ethics of war, and I think that that's a that's a different subject. Actually, I don't. I'm not really trying to be difficult, but I do think it is. 
you, you, following on the comments being made then, would you you'd presumably be against or be concerned about intelligence services, uh, whether a Christian could serve in the intelligence services? And then perhaps another thing, I was just thinking about um, Nehemiah. No, I'm thinking of Daniel. Did not uh, eat the food of the court. Yes. Not that necessarily it might not have been wrong, but it might have been food that he couldn't have eaten. Mm -hmm. And that so he deliberately did not go into, put himself into that situation where it could have arisen, even though there might not have been a problem, but there might have been. And so Mm -hmm. he avoided that. Perhaps the police officer, the lady police officer could, certainly I think in today's climate, could probably refuse to do that. And I think her stand would be respected, I think. I think there's a dilemma here, though, because uh, to serve in the police, to serve in the armed forces, I would argue to serve in the intelligence service in a time of war is, is legitimate and is, is a, a worthy calling uh, for the Christian, surely, uh, and, and right for the Christian to be there. Um, what this has done is to stir me up to pray more for those who are Christians in these places because they are encountering dilemmas which I certainly don't encounter in my pastoral work. <laughs> you know, uh, that's, that's for sure. Yeah, well, final thanks. quick point from Chris. I was going to really just th- to try and introduce the idea of trusting the all-sovereign God mm-hmm. that when we're faced with an impossible, seemingly impossible situation, mm-hmm. God is the uh, God who supplies all. And I think in medicine, I've been particularly sort of trying to think about God wanting to achieve his means, his ends, through his means, with his heart, as a helpful principle in all aspects of life, which you've just described so beautifully in five areas. I was hoping to get the theology of buying a dishwasher, but uh, I think we as doctors face a lot of those kind of difficulties, you know, about advising patients and things, Mm. and how do we second-guess God? Yes. Did you like uh, Corrie's niece then? <laughs> yes, they're under the table. Right. Yes, Aye, good. Well, thank you. You're listening to audio from christian.org.uk, the website of the Christian Institute. You can find hundreds more audio files at christian.org.uk.